Welcome back to Bible time, 2 John verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, please reveal your Son, Jesus Christ, to us by your Holy Spirit and through your Word. We ask you this in Jesus' name, and we ask you that you'd be honored and glorified and magnified in this message today and in the ears and the hearing and the hearts of everyone that hears this message. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, here in 2 John, we looked at this yesterday when we talked about who are you following? Who are you following? And the verse here, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son, is a very pivotal verse. And it's the guts of 2 John. Um, We could just preach the epistle of 2 John today. We're not going to. We'll save that for later. But it goes on from verse 9 and says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speak. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now he's not talking about whenever a Buddhist comes or a Hindu comes. He's talking about whenever someone comes who claims to be a Christian. He comes unto you. He's talking to the elect lady and her children. And he says, I beseech thee, lady, in verse 5. He's talking to the church. So when someone comes to the church and bringeth not this doctrine. So here comes someone that is bringing other doctrine. And um, we'll see that here as we look at a couple couple Bible verses in just a second. They bring doctrine that has um, transgressed and deviated from the doctrine of Christ. He says, um, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now, I have always applied this verse directly to my house. If a Jehovah's Witness comes over to preach the gospel of Jehovah, which is not the gospel of Christ, the way that they preach it. Now, Jehovah God in the Bible is God, and we know from the word of God that he is Um, He is the only God, but he also, in the word of God, says that he is a just God and a savior. In the book of Titus says that Jesus Christ is God, our savior. And so that doctrine is violated by these that claim that Jesus is not God. So therefore, if I'm visited by one of those, I will, I will open my Bible and stand on the porch and talk to them about Um, Jesus Christ and share with them the doctrine of Christ. And when they reject the doctrine of Christ, I reject them and tell them that I will not listen to anything else that they have to say. And I do that in love and I do not bid them Godspeed. I won't, I don't shake their hands. I don't say, God bless you. I don't say, have a good day. I tell them you are with love in my heart and I have no anger in my voice or in my eyes. So help me God. I tell them you are on your way to a lake of fire for eternity with the devil, which they do not believe in. I don't believe in that either, even though Jesus preached it. And I tell them, you're on your way to the lake of fire, and you're going to take everybody that listens to your doctrines of devils with you, and um, I will not listen to anything else you have to say. When I'm door knocking and I run into a Jehovah's Witness, I'll share the gospel with them, but the Bible says a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that such is subverted. And so I will not stand and continue to discuss or debate. I'll share with them the gospel of Christ. When they reject the gospel of Christ, I shake the dust off my feet and move down the road. 
Um, so that's he's saying here, with, if any of you come unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive them not into your house. The broader application here than my individual house is the house of the elect lady, the church. The place that the church is worshiping. Do not bring a heretic into the church house with his false doctrine. He's not allowed to come and hang out at the church with his false doctrine. He's allowed to come and learn about Christ, but he's not allowed to bring his false doctrine into the church house. You've got to keep that stuff out of the church house. And if you don't, your church will turn into a den of devils. So he says, um, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. We're going to look at the doctrine of Christ um, just a little bit today from, and I don't know how far the Lord will have us go in this. There's so much here that is the doctrine of Christ because the reality is that the Bible from cover to cover is the story of Christ. It begins in Genesis with Christ making the heavens and the earth. It begins there in Genesis with Christ communing with Adam and Eve in the garden when it says they heard the voice of God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. That was Christ in the garden of Eden. And all through the word of God, the, in the burning bush was Christ. And it was Jehovah God. And another place it calls it the angel. There's some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. You say, which one was it? Well, it could have been all of the above. The Bible also calls um, the in the place where Joshua met the angel that said that he was the captain of the host of the Lord. Jesus Christ often appeared in an angelic form before he had a body. But we know that he's not an angel. Now, how do we know that? Through Hebrews. We're going to get into that just a little bit. Um, who's, um, here's John's warning in Second John, and this makes it plain that men will shift away from the truth. And this will evidence that they are a deceiver and an antichrist. Look back at the text that we're looking at today. He says for, in verse 7, right before uh, verse 9 there, verse 7, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, antichrist means opposite of Christ. It means standing in opposition to and against and in defiance of Christ. That's what an antichrist is. Whenever someone stands up against you, they are anti whatever you are. We have um, anti-life people, anti-right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness people in this nation, anti-constitution people, anti-freedom um, anti people. They are pro-communist, pro-slavery, pro-murder of infants, unborn in the womb, and they call themselves pro-choice, but they are in all actuality pro-death and anti-life. They're anti-life. They're against life. Well, an anti-Christ is someone who is against Christ, someone who stands against Christ. Now, you can say that you're for Christ and still be against Christ. Did you know that? How would you do that? How would somebody be against Christ and act like and say like they are for Christ? What do you think? Do you think? Anybody here thinking? You can say that you're for Christ and be against Christ if you are like Judas and you say, yes, master, and kiss him and betray the son of man with a kiss 
and you're in cahoots with the people that are against Christ. So we see from Judas that while he was a one of the greatest antichrists that ever lived. Some people believe that he will um, return as the antichrist. I don't necessarily see a foundation for that in scripture um, that you can really stand on dogmatically, but some people really feel that that's the case um, because of the use of the word, the name son of perdition. And I can see that there. But in any case, Judas was at least an antichrist. Do you hear me? How many of you here think that Judas was an antichrist? He was against Christ. He betrayed Christ. But Judas was one of Christ's disciples. So one of the closest men to Christ was actually an antichrist. And if you saw the 12 disciples standing there um, at the last Passover when Jesus was there in the temple preaching, the last Passover that Jesus Christ was part of and the last one that counted in God's eyes, by the way, if you're out there trying to keep the Passover, you missed the whole point, but we'll move on from that. The There, Jesus and the 12 disciples are um, standing there, and if you looked at those 12 disciples and saw them, you would not think for a minute that one of them was a devil, Jesus said, and that one of them was an antichrist. How are you going to know who's an antichrist and who's not? Did you know that the Bible says that if it were possible, the antichrist would deceive the very elect? If it were possible, the Antichrist would deceive the very elect. So the deception of the Antichrist is a very deep issue. It's a very, um, it's a very um, magical issue, actually. The word magic, by the way, deals with witchcraft. And witchcraft, as one pastor um, defined it, is manipulation for the purpose of domination. It is, but beyond just manipulation for the purpose of domination, which is the, the root of witchcraft, it is the use of dark arts and of spiritual powers to manipulate, deceive, and dominate other people. And that's what the Antichrist specializes in. In the book of Daniel, it teaches us that the Antichrist will come with flattering words and take the kingdom by flatteries. And he will not take over the kingdom by his force of arms. He will not take over the kingdom by his, um, by his own strength and by his will, uh, dominating other men. He'll obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Flattery is a form. It is a infantile form of witchcraft. It's at the very base of it. It's, it's not witchcraft. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't want to mix those two things, but it's got the same driving purpose and it has the same roots and it's going the same direction. And flattery is used by witches and wizards to get you to follow them. Going back to who are you following, they'll mix in that flattery to manipulate you. So how are you going to tell what an antichrist is? What Do you think maybe you should study all the doctrines of devils out there so that you can prove how they're wrong? What do you think? I saw there's a big book out there, The Kingdom of the Cults, that you can get. And some of you are already writing it down, and you're going to go get it and read it, even though I'm telling you that to tell you you shouldn't waste your time with it. But you'll do it anyway, and that's your decision. I'm going to have to leave that between you and God. In any case, these books, you can get that many different books and many different teachings on the different cults, and you can go through all their different doctrines. Oh, look at what this guy says. Oh, look at what that guy says. I have to be really careful, because once I get on that, I get in the fighting mood, and I want to start digging into everything that they say and proving them wrong. 
There's a problem with that. There's, there's a place. You need to know a little bit about what these groups are teaching. If you want to win them to the Lord, you need to have at least a little background in where they're coming from. But the reality is that most people that are involved in cults don't know it's a cult, and they don't really even know what their cult believes. The reality is that most people that associate with cults have very little, if any, understanding of where their cult came from, how it was started, what it teaches, what the fruit is of it. They have just associated with it because they have been won over by witchcraft, by flattering, by manipulation and domination through spiritual art and smoke and mirrors and fog, and they really don't even have a clue of what their own cult teaches, and yet they're part of it. Uh, the it's very common in all those involved in a cult to know nothing about what their cult actually believes. So even the use of the idea that knowing what the cult believes is important in order to lead them to Christ is only partially useful or helpful because the vast majority of cult people that you run into don't understand their own belief system, if they even have one. Now, you may need to know some, and God knows what you know to ne- what you will need, and he will put the right burden on the right hearts of the right people. But by and large, what you're going to need to know and what the average Christian is going to need to know and every Christian is going to need to know and be a master of is the doctrine of Christ. Here it says, if any whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. By the way, uh, Jesus didn't say ye shall know that the lie is a lie and that will make you free. Did you catch that? Jesus did not say, ye shall know that the lie is a lie and that shall make you free. He said, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, as you're turning to Galatians chapter one, I want to make the observation as well that even amongst cult people who believe their cult lies, if they study it all, they all, without exception, will formulate their own opinions and their own belief systems. In order to have cultic beliefs, all you have to do is deviate from the doctrine of Christ in the Bible. And once you have left the doctrine of Christ, which is what the whole Bible is about, and once the Bible is no longer the source and authority of what you believe, the sky's the limit. And you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can believe um, half of what your cult believes and half of what another cult believes. The fact is the Bible says in the last days, deceivers shall increase and they will be dece- deceivers and being deceived, deceiving and being deceived. And they're going to lie not only to other people, but to each other. These cults teach people to lie. They teach people false definitions. And they teach people to use the false definitions to try and find some kind of unity and common ground from which to build their continued lies. So they will say as a cult, oh, I believe in Jesus. But they have another Jesus and they have another gospel. They have another doctrine of Christ. They don't believe anything about Jesus that you claim to believe about Jesus. And most of the time, if they're proselytizing, they know that already. They're They're not stupid enough to think that they, most of them, that what they believe and what you believe are the same, else they wouldn't be proselytizing. 
They're coming to try and move you from your faith to their faith. And they know that, but they come in as angels of light and they come in trying to sound like they believe the same thing because they know that you're going to react to them if they come out to you telling you that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross of Calvary, who you've placed your faith and trust in, is not really God at all, but that he's the brother of the devil. And they know if they tell you that off the break, that most people are going to slam the door right off the bat. Because even a nominal Christian can pick up that that is a lie from hell. So they're not going to come out of the box with that kind of information. They're going to start soft. And they're going to start by trying to find common ground that they can agree with you on. And they're going to say, I believe in Jesus. And you say, oh, goody, goody. And clap your hands and get out your little um, crumpets and your tea. And you're going to have your little happy time with them and they're going to send some people over to fix your roof and they're going to mow your lawn and you're going to keep on having them over and before you know it they're going to have you sucked in by flatteries and by everything else and then next thing you know you're going to join their church and be part of that cult and not even know what they believe because you're ignorant of the doctrine of Christ and you've never taken time to study it so today This is the goal, is to help you to see a summary of the doctrine of Christ and to give you a desire to study that doctrine for yourself. So Galatians 1 and verse 6 says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And here's where our modern interfaith ecumenical crowd goes, oh no, Mr. Paul, you don't really understand. You see, God sees their heart and he knows that deep down inside, we all worship the same God and we're all going to go to the same place in the end because God, he sees our hearts and, and it's really okay, Mr. Paul, you don't have to be so hard on these people and mr paul says paul an apostle not of men neither by man but by jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead excuse me i'm not just mr paul to you now he is to the church at thessalonica as we said that but why because they're operating and living under the doctrine and authority and headship of jesus christ which puts them on equal ground with paul but paul here to these ecumenicalists and all that would address himself paul an apostle not of men neither by man but by jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead. And he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. I marvel that you are so soon removed. You've been shifted. You've been pushed off of what you professed that you believe. And you have gone from one thing to another thing. You have gone from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And then he says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And he says, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have have received, let him be accursed. And here Paul claims to have a greater authority in the gospel than an angel. He says, 
as if a man or even an angel comes and preaches to you any other gospel than that which ye have received of us. Let him be accursed. Go to 2 Corinthians. It's just back a couple pages. Verse chapter 11. And verse 3 and 4, Paul says here to the church at Corinth, again, a church he had to address as apostle because he was carnal. Carnal churches have to have apostles, by the way. Churches that are under the headship and authority of Christ are happy to live under the teachings of the 12 apostles and they carry their Bibles high and they hold them in esteem and they don't need a bunch of monkey suit apostles running around masquerading like they've got power to reveal new scriptures. It says here in 2 Corinthians, Lord, help me to stay on track. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Subtlety. Listen to me. This is subtlety. The, the, listen, you know what your problem is today? You think you're so smart. Maybe you don't. Maybe you do. Maybe my hearer, whoever you are, does. But your problem is you think you're so smart that you can't get duped by this stuff. And the reality is you're ignorant. And I'm saying that in love. Ignorant means you don't know. And if you don't know, then you are lined up on the devil's checklist and he's got his minister of light picked out for you already and he has the time and the place marked and he is moving events and he is moving circumstances to bring the angel of light, his special minister, into your life to deceive you. He's already at work doing it or he has done it already and he's on his way because he He smells easy pickings and the devil is lazy and he loves to get the low hanging fruit. Now, as lazy as he is, he's also desperately angry and that gets him over his anger and gets him to attack everybody. But he loves the low hanging fruit. And if you don't know Christ, the doctrine of Christ, you are low hanging fruit for Satan. He is on his way already. You need to get in the Bible and get grounded and founded in the doctrine of Christ. So here he goes on and he says, for if he that cometh, he says, he says, listen, we're going to back it up. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. He's saying, if somebody comes along and can offer you something better than the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the full and total complete pardon of all your sins and the remission and removal of your sins and the placing of yourself in Christ with eternal life forever as a joint heir with Christ and if somebody comes with something better than the Holy Spirit of God himself who can comfort you in all your afflictions and all your trials and bring to your memory the words that Christ spoke unto you and somebody comes with another gospel that's better than the one that we've preached. He says, you might well bear with them. You ought to listen to them. But listen to me, brothers and sisters in Christ, and those of you that may be lost in listening today, there is no other Jesus worth mentioning. There is no other spirit that you want indwelling you. There is no other gospel that can give you eternal life than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if any other one come preaching any other gospel, Paul said in a few pages to the Galatians there in chapter 1, let him be a Now, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, uh, he gives us the 
start of our summary of the doctrine of Christ. So we're going to move right into that. Summary of the Doctrine of Christ. Um, By the way, before we jump into this summary of the Doctrine of Christ, I want to just point something out to you. A liar, as I said, I may have said it earlier, can always come up, up with another lie. If you try and prove a liar wrong, he'll just make up another lie. And it takes a liar about a a thousandth of the amount of time to lie as it takes you to prove the lie wrong. It takes actual work to prove a lie wrong. You have to actually look at what is said and look at the facts and substantiate your arguments with truth and then come to refute the lie. But a lie can just be made up. You don't even have to think about it. You just kind of spit it out, especially when you're of your father, the devil, who is a liar, and he's feeding you the lies to spit. And if you're out there trying to put out lies, you're just trying to stomp out a forest fire in tennis shoes. Not a good idea. Tried it. (laughs) It didn't work. You had to get the fire department in on that one. Anyway. It's not going to work. Stop trying to stomp the lies out and get the truth, the doctrine of Christ. That's like bringing in the tanker truck. And instead of trying to stomp the lies out in your tennis shoes, get the tanker truck or the water of the word of God and get that hose opened wide and douse that fire in the truth of the doctrine of Christ. That's the answer for it. So let's jump into this. And the first part here is the first part principle of the doctrine of Christ is that the doctrine of Christ is is by divine revelation. The doctrine of Christ is by divine revelation. Galatians 1.12, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew 16, 16 and 17 quickly. Here we have Peter. Whom say men that I am? And Peter answers Christ. Hard to get to my place here. Matthew 16, 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Go to 1 Peter 1. Peter never forgot that interaction with Christ first Peter chapter 1 and we'll look at verse 16 I think I got the wrong yes yeah, second Peter Verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter had audibly heard the word of God almighty with his ears. He heard God say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Peter had divine revelation of who Christ is, of who Christ was on earth. So 1 Peter um, 1.19 tells us that we have a more sure word of prophecy than the voice that came from heaven. Uh, It says, 
Verse 18, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by by the Holy Ghost. So this this doctrine, uh, Lord help me, we could just camp here the whole time. We're not going to. We've got to keep moving. We're just giving a summary today. This doctrine here of divine revelation, the doctrine of Christ is given by divine revelation. The apostles were given divine direct revelation from Almighty God that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And they passed that on in direct agreement with the prophecies of Scripture in the epistles and the rest of the work of the New Testament. And what we're being taught here today in the Word of God is that the Bible now is divine revelation. That this book that I'm holding in my hand is not a cunningly devised fable that some smart guy named Paul thought up whenever he wasn't getting enough political advancement moving forward fast enough so he wanted to advance himself and make a name for himself so he cooked up this idea that would get him stoned three times and shipwrecked and a night and the day in the deep and suffer privation and hunger and being maligned and misrepresented and finally beheaded on the Appian Way all for the chance at fame and, and fortune. It didn't work out too good if that was his plan. People that accuse Paul of that are, are beyond idiotic. In that kind of an accusation. In any case, he's saying this is not a cunningly devised fable. Paul didn't just cook up this Bible. Look at me today. The Bible that you have right there in your lap, right there, that Bible that you have, that you should have with you, that Bible is the divine revelation of Almighty God. And it is that by which you will learn the doctrine of Christ and nothing else. If you go to man to learn about Jesus Christ, you will err. You will be a heretic by the time they're done with you. And you'll be out there teaching other people to be heretics. You must go to divine revelation. If you do not get divine revelation of who Christ is, you will not get it. Flesh and blood cannot give it to you. It can only be accessed through the word of God. And this deals with the authority of the scriptures. Then you have to get into the preservation of the scriptures, all of which we've talked about, all of which I believe in emphatically because God said that he would do it, but we don't have time to study that now. (coughs) Suffice it to say today that the word of God is the divine revelation by which the doctrine of Christ can be known. Right here, this book is your only hope of knowing Christ. And this book is the source of all, author- of, of all authority on the doctrine of Christ. Hebrews 6.1, of all authority on any doctrine or any exhortation or any matter that pertains to life or any other part of our being. Hebrews chapter 6.1 explains that the preceding chapters covered in Hebrews covered the principles of the doctrine of Christ. So I'm going to give you these as homework. Study Hebrews chapter 1 through 5 carefully. Read it and reread it. 
Hebrews chapters 1 through 5 very closely. The other chapters also are very important, but those chapters, Hebrews 1 through 5, deal with the principles of the doctrine of Christ. They do not include all of the aspects of who Christ is. They don't cover everything about Christ, but they are the principles of the doctrine of Christ that if you can get those principles down, you have a foundation from which to work. So that's Hebrews 1 through 5. Um, Study the Gospels as well. Um, Study those Gospels. Now, this is not something that's necessarily homework for tomorrow. This is homework for life. Study the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then read them again, and read them again, and read them again, and read them again, and ask God to teach you about Christ. You must become intimately familiar with Christ. You must. He is the way, the truth, the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by him. If you get Christ and you don't get all the doctrines and traditions that go along with your church, who cares? Just get Christ. If you can get Christ, everything else flows from that. And by the way, the doctrine of Christ, once understood, becomes the foundation for every other doctrine in the Bible. Why don't people see eye to eye? Because people don't see Christ. That's the reason. There's other Gospels, there's other Jesuses, there's other Christ. The reason we have so much disunity and disharmony amongst the churches that name the name of Jesus Christ in our day is because there are so many different Jesuses running around. If we all had the same Jesus, we would have unity. The fact that we don't have unity is evidence that we do not have the same Jesus. It's the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that ye all be one. He said, as I and my father are one. That's a big statement. That's unfathomable. Now, let's move on. We have the eternal existence of Christ as God and as the word of God, one of three, but yet one. And that's the eternal existence of Christ Jesus. And we see this in Hebrews 1, verse 2. Go there quickly. We're going to be in Hebrews a lot. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, We're just going to survey some verses and keep moving today. Just kind of a survey. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 says, um, well, we got to get verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So right there in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, it credits Christ as being the creator God. And yet the Son of God, while being the creator, God. Um, Right off the bat, we see that um, duality, which is part of the Trinity. Now we go to verse 8, and he says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Why would God say to his Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, if God is one God, and God is one God? Now, if you want to go on and make a bunch of doctrines of men about this, then just Go on and do it. You'll take yourself and everybody with you that follows you straight into hell and into the lake of fire for eternity. But the Bible says that God said unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And then look at Hebrews 10, 1.10. 
And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hand, thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth the garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail." This is what God said to his son. He says, thou art the same and thy years shall not fail. This is the eternal existence of Jesus Christ as God and yet as the son of God. From eternity past, before the creation of the world, Jesus Christ as God made the world and Jesus Christ will one day destroy the world. And when this heaven and earth are are burnt up and have passed away and fled from before the face of him that sitteth upon the throne, as it says in Revelation, Jesus Christ will still remain. This is the eternal existence of Christ Jesus. If you can get this, this saves you so much trouble. And all these other doctrines suddenly are are shown in the light of the truth. The fire gets put out by the water of the word. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By him were all things made that were made trying to get there and without and was not anything made that was made (coughs) excuse me (coughs) pray for my lungs and throat i would appreciate it thank you um john chapter one There, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Look it up in your Bible. If it's not in your Bible, or if your Bible discredits that verse, throw your Bible in the trash and go get a real Bible. And we're moving on from there. Um, The preeminence of Christ is next, and we see that also in Hebrews chapter 1. As you're going there, we have um, in 1 John, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, and our hands have handled of the word of God. Look that verse up real quick, too, on my way. We'll get that one later. Um, Try and remind me. Hebrews chapter (coughs) 1. So I'm sure I didn't quote it right. Hebrews chapter 1, we have Christ above the angels. Now, we can't read this whole thing um, right now. We don't have time. But look at verse 6. And again, when he saith, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So here and all through Hebrews 1, it contrasts Christ to the angels. Christ is preeminent above the angels. He, is, he existed before the angels. He is the creator of the angels. John 1 that we just went to, you don't have to turn back there right now, shows us the preeminence of Christ as creator. He is above the creation. God, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, and yet God at the same time is above every name. Go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. This area is another great um, litmus test for a Bible. Find out if you have an edited version or a translation of the Scriptures. 
I've got a translation of the scriptures, no matter what anybody tries to tell me. The word of God in English, Philippians 2, um, 9 through 11. <clears throat> Some people call it the King James Version. The authorized version, I call it the King James Bible. And that's what I go by. It's the very word of God. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Look at the context. It's Jesus Christ. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. The cherubims and the seraphims will bow to Jesus. The angels will bow to Jesus. The four and twenty elders will bow, will bow <coughs> to Jesus. <coughs> The 144,000 that are all virgins, by the way. They're all virgins, by the way. If you get that, you want to be a JW, you better have been a celibate. Anyway, Lord, help me stay on track. The 144,000 are going to bow before Jesus Christ. In Revelation, go and look at it. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's preeminent in authority. Go back to Hebrews Chapter 2 and verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. And then we're going to get into the rest of that verse, Lord willing, um, in the next section. So this is the preeminence of Christ. Preeminent above the angels. Preeminent above creation. Preeminent above every name that is named. Preeminent in authority. Jesus Christ, the preeminence of Christ. When you begin to get the preeminence of Christ, it solves a bunch of problems. When some guy tries to come along and, and take some of the glory and the ministry and the finished work of Christ and his preeminence and try and bring you into a subjection to him instead of Christ to whom all things are subject, if you understand the preeminence of Christ, you will instantly be able to see that you are dealing with a wolf. If you do not know Christ, you're going to get sucker grabbed. Some of you don't know what that is. Over here in Missouri, we have these little fish we call suckers. And they swim in our rivers. And they are bottom feeders. And if you grab yourself some good hooks, you can go out and throw your hook out in the water. <coughs> and if you get skilled at it, you can watch those suckers run in the bottom. And you can jerk that line and that hook right across the side of that fish while it's busy feeding. And it'll catch that hook, will catch in the flesh of that fish. And you jerk it up out of the water. And you take it home and eat it for dinner. And that's what's going to happen to some of you because you don't know the doctrine of Christ. If you don't know the doctrine of Christ, it will happen to you. You need to know Christ or you're going to get sucker grabbed. <coughs> Excuse me. Next, let's look real quickly at the incarnation of Christ, starting right there in Hebrews chapter 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, here comes a sweet, slick-talking cult expert um, proselytizer to your door, and he opens it up to Hebrews chapter 2, and you should have known it already because you should have studied it, but you've never even read the book of Hebrews, much less studied it. And so whenever he shows you that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, oh my word, I've been deceived. I thought Jesus was God because that's what I heard the preacher say, but I never read the Bible for myself. Let's hear, see what else you have to say. And Mr. Cult Leader just sucker grabbed you. You are hooked. 
Listen to me. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. This verse proves not that Jesus was a created being made by God 2,000 years ago, but that Jesus, God Almighty, the creator of the universe, who was God, the Bible says in the beginning, was made a man. That should like be an explosion of revelation right there to your mind. Jesus Christ was made a man. We're going to look at this in the Bible real quickly. Look at, <coughs> excuse me, verse, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the angel, the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Did you hear that? Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So this is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, that Christ who was God already, who created the heavens and the earth, nevertheless was made a man. Already God. God, but he was made a man. And it says there, he took not on him the nature of angels. Mr. Uh, Mormon man that's listening. I hope we have some Mormons that listen to this. It says he took not on him the nature of angels. The Bible clearly says he was above the angels and the creator of the angels. And he did not take on the nature of angels. He went way down lower than that to rescue man from his sin. And he was made in flesh and blood as a man. Let's run some more verses real quick you don't have to turn to john 1 um, go to hebrews 5 john 1 14 tells us the word was made flesh absolutely undeniable irrefutable proof that god almighty became a literal physical man the word was made flesh read the accounts in luke chapter 1 through 2 and matthew 1 through 2 of the incarnation of christ of jesus christ being born from mary's womb a virgin who had never known man Hebrews chapter 5, <coughs> excuse me, have mercy on the infirmity of my flesh. <coughs> so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Do you notice that God said to Christ, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. <clears throat> this is powerful truth. And <clears throat> let's go to Hebrews 10. Before you get there, there in chapter 5, that's the verse I was looking for. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. So here's the eternal, all-knowing God learning things. You say, well, that's contradictory. God puts contradictions in the Bible so that cultic heretics can go to hell believing them. God will give you enough rope to hang yourself with sir if you will not believe him and believe his word above your own mind hebrews chapter 10 
and verse 5. <clears throat> Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to, of me to do thy will, O God. Jesus Christ said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, sacrifices and offerings thou wouldst not, but a body thou hast prepared me. This is the incarnation of Christ, who was not only sentient, in other words, a thinking individual before he was born, which is not what you were, by the way. Nowhere in the Bible is there any evidence to support that you existed before your birth other than in the mind of God. But you were not a creature or an angel or anything else in heaven before you were born. You, were, you are a created being. God is eternal and infinite. You are not. And that's Bible. But that's, not the, um, that's a side doctrine of what we're studying today. So let's get back on track here. The body hast thou prepared me. Jesus Christ was, a, was not only sentient, but he was one with God, part of the Godhead, as 1 John 5, 7 states. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And Jesus Christ in heaven spoke with God, and God spoke with Jesus, and they discussed this plan, which God doesn't do with mere mortals or anyone else that he, um, where he doesn't, he doesn't do this. He doesn't treat anyone like he treated Christ. You can see the doctrine of Christ by studying how God the Father dealt with Christ. <clears throat> so he says, a body hast thou prepared me. Let's go to the next one real quick. The sinless perfection of Christ. Go to Hebrews um, 4 and verse 15. <clears throat> For we have not an high priest, which if you look in 14 is Jesus, the son of God. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And this shows us not only the sinless perfection of Christ, but again, the incarnation of Christ that he could be tempted because God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, yet God became a man, and the man Christ Jesus was tempted. Why didn't he fall? Because God cannot be tempted with evil. That's why he didn't fall. Because though his man, the man Jesus Christ, was tempted in his body of flesh, God, Jesus Christ, in the man, could not be tempted, and therefore Jesus could not sin. He was immune to it, though he felt all of the tug and the pull and the draw of the temptation of sin, he never sinned. It says, yet without sin. This is the sinless perfection of Christ. Go to Hebrews 7 and verse 26. Here the Bible says that for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now, you cannot explain to me that Jesus is a sinner if I know my Bible because my Bible says he's holy, he's harmless, he's undefiled, he's separate from sinners. And all these yo-yos run around saying, oh Jesus, friend of sinners. And so they run out to the bar and they drink the booze and they dance to the rock music and they shack up and everything else claiming to be Christians and saying Jesus was a friend of sinners. The Bible says Jesus was separate from sinners. But the Bible says that the scribes and Pharisees called him a friend of sinners. And why did, he, why did they accuse him of that? 
because he went to the sinners where they were and he loved them enough to warn them to repent. And he told them, go and sin no more. And he told them of of salvation by believing in the name of the only son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that religious crowd didn't want the sinners to be justified. They wanted the sinners to be under their thumb of religion. So they accused Jesus, oh, he's a friend of sinners. And indeed he was. But his friendship to the sinner was a friendship of a redemption, a rescuing from the sin. And he never went down into the hog pit of sin with the sinners ever. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews um, 9 and verse 14. It says, for if the blood of bulls and goats, in verse 13, and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How many spots did Jesus have as a sacrifice? None. Without spot. If Jesus had had even one sin of any magnitude if he had told a white lie if he had ever looked with lust on a woman ever jesus christ would have no power to deliver you from the grave no power to save your soul he was sinless jesus christ is sinless there's many 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 more verses which of you convinceth me of sin said christ pilate said i find no fault in him um then the bible says neither did their witnesses agree they couldn't even get two false witnesses to agree together and lie on him together god would tangle their tongues and they couldn't even get it out right when they tried to lie on him and say he was a sinner god said from heaven this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and the bible says that the man born blind said God heareth not sinners. If this man were a sinner, were not of God, he could do nothing. And Hebrews 2, 4 um, speaks of these people that testified of Christ and of his sinlessness. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now we move to the suffering sacrifice of Christ, and we're probably just going to wrap it up right here or pretty soon in the next couple minutes. What we've just looked at is the bulk of the principles of the doctrine of Christ. These concepts of, of Christ, that first of all, that the doctrine of Christ is by divine revelation and not the doctrine of men. Secondly, the eternal existence of Christ Jesus. Thirdly, the preeminence of Christ Jesus above everything. Fourthly, the incarnation of Christ. And fifthly, the sinless perfection of Christ. These are the principles of who Christ is. And now there is much, 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 much more to learn about Christ. And it will take a lifetime of study to even begin to be well acquainted with the facts that are in this Bible. And yet the apostle John said that if everything that Jesus did were written, that he supposes that not even the earth could contain the scrolls, the books that would be written to tell what Jesus had done. And we have this one little book, 66 books of the Bible. In my Bible, that comes out to a little over 2,000 pages at this format. 
Uh, mine has a little extra room for notes, so it might have more pages in it than yours, less, um, so there's more of a margin. Different, different layouts will have different numbers, but around 2,000 pages, 66 books right here in the Bible, and this book right here, we must understand, is divine revelation from God designed to teach us the doctrine of Christ so that we can be saved and so that we won't be deceived and lose our reward. This book is the final authority on Christ and who he is. It will take a lifetime of study to even begin to really grasp these basic ideas about Christ that he's given us in the word of God. And yet, whenever we finish this life and we go and see him, we will know him as he is known. And we'll spend an eternity reveling in the reality of the doctrine of Christ. That's what makes heaven heaven. Christ is what makes heaven heaven. He is the light thereof. And you can't enjoy any place in darkness. Christ is the light thereof, the light of heaven. The next things that come in the doctrine of Christ are the um, suffering sacrifice of Christ, his death on the cross. And we can look at that in Hebrews again, but then there's Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, Luke 22 and 23, John 18 and 19, all tell the stories of Christ's death on the cross, his perfect sacrifice for our sins. Um, right there in Hebrews, we'll look at a couple verses, Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, but we see Jesus. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And there the cult man points and says, see, 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 Jesus had to be made perfect. That means he wasn't perfect. Don't let those guys even sway you for a minute. You need to learn the doctrine of Christ. It made the captain of salvation perfect. It didn't make the eternal God, Jesus Christ, perfect. Do you hear me? And there is a difference. It made his ministry, his work, perfect. His suffering did. And therefore, the title, the captain of their salvation, perfect. And you'll find that that holds true as you study the doctrine of Christ. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 a similar text here says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He did not learn about ob obedience, but the man Christ Jesus experientially learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Whereas the God Christ Jesus had always known not only of obedience and about obedience, but was obedient to the will of the Father. But as a man, Christ learned as a man obedience by the things which he suffered. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Again, this is speaking directly in context of his work of salvation. And that that sacrifice then was made perfect by his suffering. It was made perfect by his obedience. If he had come and not suffered, it would not have been a perfect sacrifice. Though it still would have been a sinless sacrifice. His suffering made his sacrifice perfect. Next is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Again, we're, we're closing out here. We don't have time to study all this. I just want to wet your whistle. Just want to get you started. I just want to give you a shove into the 
arena and the field of the study of the doctrine of Christ and the Word of God. Get your mind thinking that way. The principles of Christ are the basis for all the other doctrines of Christ. We've not even looked at Old Testament verses, and the Old Testament is full of scriptures about who Christ is. When you know who He is, that explains why and how He did what He did, and why and how He'll do what He is going to do. You have the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, and verse 20 and chapter 21 and then all through the the epistles you have the doctrines of the resurrection some of the greatest texts on the resurrection of jesus christ is to in the letters to the corinthian church we have the ascension of christ back to heaven you have the position of christ in heaven you have the authority of christ on earth as the head of the church and also expecting, waiting until God delivers to him the rest of the world to rule with a rod of iron. You have the commission of Christ to his church. You have the return of Christ for his church. You have the final or second coming of Christ in glory and power and etc. etc. All the doctrines in the Bible revolve around Christ. Everything in the Word of God revolves around Christ. Every Bible doctrine, every verse of the Bible, ultimately, in its goal, is to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ and lift Him up and exalt Him. The purpose of the church on earth is to exalt Christ. Christ is the light of men. And the Bible says that in John chapter 1. And then the, Jesus said that his church was a city set on a hill, a candle that was lit that should not be put under a bushel, but set upon the candlestick that all may see. And the church then, the whole purpose of the church is to be a, the candlestick for the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to hold up and to, to exalt Jesus Christ. The exaltation of Jesus Christ is the purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Every doctrine in the Bible revolves around the doctrine of Christ. You must know the doctrine of Christ. If you would be free, you must know the truth. Don't try to study all the doctrines of devils. Don't try and stand and argue with heretics and cultics. Always bring them back to Christ. When you meet somebody and they begin to go off down a weird rabbit trail and you don't know where it's going, just start bringing it back to Christ. Pretty soon you'll find out. Pretty soon you'll find out when they start getting enraged over Christ or whenever they start blaspheming Christ. You just keep bringing it back to Christ. The question that Jesus asked is one of the greatest questions you can ask when doing evangelistic work. Whom say men that I am? Whom say ye that I am? Ask them. And when they tell you what their people, their church, their denomination says about Christ, ask them, what do you believe about Christ? And then take them to the scriptures. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would exalt Christ through this message. We pray, Lord God, that the doctrine of Christ would become so near and dear to us that it would be the bedrock that you desire for it to be, that we would be built upon the rock, Lord, hearing and doing Christ's sayings, be followers of Christ. Lord, everything in this Bible revolves around this foundational principle of the doctrine of Christ. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to see the importance of it the way that you see it. Help us to prioritize the doctrine of Christ and help us to preach the doctrine of Christ. In Jesus Christ's precious name, amen.